Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy! The show is brought to you by Rudus Metal Detectors, makers of the Alter 71. Discover new possibilities at rudus.com.pl. Well, hey, how's everybody doing? This is going to be a very, very special episode. This is the first one that I've spent probably a good 48 hours actually researching and making sure that all the data that I'm saying is absolutely and positively correct. Now, uh, I don't know if any of you actually listen to any true crime podcasts out there as well. Uh, that's what we're going to be kind of doing today. This is going to be the very first of the GDA finds stories that is 100% true and accurate as far as the information that I can find. So before we actually get into it, I want to go ahead and thank every single one of you. You guys are listening to my nasty voice and I can't thank you enough for it. I know this show is coming out a little earlier this week because I was so excited to get this out to you guys, and I think you're going to love this. This is an amalgamation of both the GDA radio podcast and the GDA's fine stories, but this one was so big, I couldn't just do it in its standalone episode. That's why there was none this week at all, and uh, so we're going to be fixing that right now. So make sure you guys head over to our sponsors uh, first and foremost. That's uh, rudus.com.pl, makers of the great Alter 71. 71 frequencies. You can't do much more than that. It's great. I love my machine. You would love it too. I love mine. Got some big news coming out this, uh, this coming week. I'm hoping to have this done really soon. The new GDA podcast website will be out. Yes, I am sitting here home, written sick from work with a bad knee after surgery, making you guys a brand new, really amazing website. I think you're going to like this. I'm really proud of this one. I'm putting a lot of work into this, more work than I can actually even say on, um, on the air. So I want you guys to actually uh, check this out. I'll give you a heads up on the Facebook group once it's available. That's uh, Global Detection Adventures on Facebook. Make sure you check that out. Uh, Head on over there and uh, check out the group. Make sure you share all your finds and everything else on there. It's a really great group. Uh, I know there's a lot of them out there that has some... Some issues with trolling and everything else. Uh, That's one of the things we do not at all uh, stand by. We do not allow any kind of trolling or phishing or anything else on on, uh, the GDA uh, Facebook group. Because it is just horrible, first of all. Um, You know, we love our hobby. We love the people that are in the hobby. So why troll other metal detectors? It doesn't even make sense. So head on over to Facebook, do a search for Global Detection Adventures, Uh, it'll pop up. You can just search for GDA and it'll pop up. Just join, uh, answer two really easy questions. Uh, If you're a metal detector, these questions are super easy for you. And uh, 
Uh, we'll bring you in. We do this to make sure that we don't get any unwanted visitors and guests in there. No advertising. Uh, nobody wants to buy those Oakley sunglasses anyway because they're coming out of China and it actually says Folkley on it. Uh, nobody wants those. But anyway, uh, get over there. Check it out. If you haven't already, make sure you head over to iTunes. Uh, subscribe to us. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. That is the greatest place that you can actually subscribe to the GDA radio podcast right on iTunes. Uh, what it does is um, iTunes uh, is one of the greatest places for us to reach a larger audience. But the only way we could do that is if people give us uh, a rating and reviews on um, the iTunes page. And uh you don't have to even say anything about the show itself. You can give us a rating and then your review could be, you know, you were walking the dog the other day and you saw a squirrel eating a nut. It doesn't even have to be about the show. What iTunes does, they have some kind of an algorithm that sees that people are responding to our show and they will put us on uh, lists. So, you know, games and hobbies or hobbies or outdoors and recreation, they'll put us onto that list and bump us up and get us more and more listeners into the show. And I'm hoping you guys will really help with that. You guys are doing a really great job liking and leaving comments and everything else has just been awesome unbelievable i have loved seeing it as it has been happening now i'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up on this uh this episode of the gda fine stories this one does cover true crime and everything else so uh there's no murder there's no deaths or anything else but if you don't like these kind of shows you can check it out uh just listen to some of the other ones uh but this one, if you stick around, I think you're going to love this. Uh, this is a really great story. Um, I'm going to be talking this week about um, what is called the Nebra Sky Disc. It was found uh, not too far from where I live, probably about an hour and a half drive from where I live, by metal detectors back in 1999. Now, a lot of people know uh, little bits here and there about the story, but the story itself is so deep and so, so um, intricate, in, intricate, I can speak, intricate. <laughs> it goes back and forth constantly. And uh, you, you'd be surprised the amount of back and forth this, ha this, this story actually has. Uh, a lot of people know that it was a, a disc that goes back several thousand years that was discovered by metal detectors and sold off in the black market, and they just recently found out what it was for and why it's so important. But uh, we're going to be talking about the entire story of the Nebra Sky Disc. So as a lot of you know, this is an event that really separated metal detectors and archaeologists throughout Europe in 1999. I guess you could say this tale is a cautionary tale, but also a tale of what can be found if metal detecting is done ethically and legally. This story shows how bad blackhawking or illegal metal detecting can be and how it affects the public and political opinion about what it is that we do. This story begins about 60 miles west of Leipzig, Germany, on a wooded hill in the German state of Saxon-Anhalt. The laws in Saxon-Anhalt are vague, so the basic laws for metal detecting in the state says that if a find of archaeological significance is found, it must be reported and becomes property of the state. But the law is kind of written in such a way that it doesn't specify what is considered an archaeological significant item. It's literally written in a way that says that basically anything that's found that they want, they can keep. Now, some people take this to mean that all the fines need to be handed over to the authorities, but there's no law that says this. It's on the metal detector in a way. 
uh, using his own judgment and not just tearing things out of the ground willy-nilly without regards for the items and just wanting to take them home. That's what's important. There are no cases, no matter what is read, where a metal detector in Germany has served actual jail time for illegal metal detecting or unethical practices. They get sentenced, but to date, none have served time. Several years ago, a German detector on YouTube shared a video of him finding a gold necklace. It was a large, almost ceremonial-type necklace. There were about 30 gold small square plates on the front which went from one shoulder to the next, and then hung down, forming an almost downward pyramid in front of the wearer. It was clear that this necklace was handmade. The detector could be seen in the video slamming a spade into the ground and coming up with more and more pieces. In one case on the video, he's even seen yanking forcibly one out of the ground. <laughs> the process damaged the necklace. The detector shared a couple more videos about his glee on finding all the gold in the ground. The problem was that an archaeologist in the state saw it as well. And I mean the state here in Germany. He reported the video and within a couple days the law enforcement was knocking on the kid's door. He spent the next couple months posting videos about how unfair it was that the state was taking him to court for illegally digging, damaging, and removing historically significant finds from the ground, and that he'd have to pay fees and everything else. Then, all of the kids' videos just suddenly disappeared. Now, I remember this because there was a quick blip on the local German news, and then all the talk about it just vanished. I mean, I can't even find information about it anymore about what happened today. However, I saw the videos when I began metal detecting, and you could instantly see the damage to the history that the kid was doing, and I cringed every single time that spade fell into the ground and he yanked out another gold piece. It was horrible. And this brings us to 1999. See, I went in a full circle. <laughs> in 1999, uh, metal detectors uh, Henry Westfall and Mario Renner were on top of a large hill metal detecting in a nature park. In and of itself, it's not illegal to do. They were detecting when Henry got a signal, which, when he dug it up, it ended up being a bronze chisel. Within minutes, uh, an, yeah, Henry had found uh, a hatchet as well, and then he found another hatchet, and then the signals just kept coming. Within a couple hours, they had found two bronze hatchets, one chisel, two bronze swords, and then the unbelievable began to happen. Pieces of a gold spiral bracelet started emerging from the ground, and then another bracelet. So they found two gold spiral bracelets. They immediately knew they had found a prehistoric site. But still detecting, the next signal came. And this one would change history forever. It's still considered one of the most significant historical finds to date. The man... The men found the next signal. Henry shoved the spade into the ground and hit something. He removed the soil and began digging it out by hand. And there it sat. At a little over 30 centimeters or 12 inches, uh, a green-colored bronze disc sat in the ground. On it were several dots of gold, a large circular gold piece and a, a crescent-shaped gold piece on it. And on one side, it was kind of rimmed in gold like quarter of the way around the ridge. It was the Nebra Sky Disk. There was now, however, a large dent in the edge of where Henry's spade had hit it and damaged it. He didn't understand exactly how the pinpointing function of his metal detector had worked and shoved his spade directly into the ground right where the signal was. That's where the problem was. But the men were elated and they knew what they were holding was money in the bank. And here, 
again, is where the problem lies. How many of us do this for the money? I know if you're listening to this podcast, I know you're most likely one of three types of metal detectors. I got these written down. Number one. You're a coin shooter. The coin shooter goes to a parks, beaches, and other places looking for coins, either historic or modern, to collect or spend if modern. I mean, <laughs> who doesn't need some money for the vending machine at work, right? The other kind is a relic hunter. The relic hunters love the thrill of finding objects in the ground that are attached to history. Uh, we love finding bits and pieces, baubles, doodads, determining what they are and, and trying to figure out where they came from. The, the story to a relic hunter is huge, like my fat belly huge kind of thing. And then there's the coin licker. The coin licker is someone who embraces both relic and coin shootings. They are the person out on a field finding what might be a coin and, unsure, removes as much dirt as possible before tossing it into their mouth. They understand the natural acids are tough enough on the clump and caked on dirt, but also soft on the patina of the, core, uh, of the coin. Or, we just like licking coins. <laughs> but there is another much darker treasure hunter out there on the serious side the people who don't care for laws and blatant disregard for them in the search for what they consider to be financial gains but mostly also include personal gain uh this includes people who willingly metal detect land which is known historically protected, such as, I think it was two years ago, uh, when I think it was during the summer in England, multiple dig sites were found along uh, Hadrian's Wall, an area which is clearly marked as historic and I believe even has uh, signs forbidding metal detecting and digging. The person or persons were digging holes within feet of this uh, protected landmark, over 2,000 years old. They were just digging and removing whatever they were finding and leaving the holes wide open. I mean, there was a huge hubbub about this in the British news and press. Or uh, right here in Schweinfurt, at the castle where I was working briefly as a groundskeeper, I was mapping the lost garden for one of the owners you know, from the 1800s. Uh, the, uh, it had been completely overgrown and portions of the hill had kind of slid down into it from uh, nobody taking care of the, the lands and everything. So we wanted to map it out to see exactly how it was because the owner at that point wanted to bring it back to that exact, um, uh, you know, the way it looked uh, back in the late 1800s because that was considered one of the most beautiful gardens in the area. Uh, but I started finding holes in the ground. And I was just, it was tripping me out. This is right when I, right after I started metal detecting. I had a really uh, cheap one. Now, uh, this castle is located, uh, excuse me, this castle is a well-known and clearly marked historical landmark. I mean, there's a plaque right in front of it. And it's forbidden in Germany to dig within 50 meters of the grounds, or about 150 feet. But they say over here in the historical branch that uh, give it 100 meters, or about 330 feet, uh, just as a safety buffer around historical monuments. And anyone who metal detects in Germany knows to always look at the historical registry online to see if there's anything lying on their permissions. But, I mean, here I was, looking at holes in the ground, knowing damn well that it was a metal detector. Now, how do I know this, you ask me? Well, good question. Because each and every single hole that was in the ground had a piece of metal trash laying next to it in the soil that was removed out of the ground. So it was laying right on top of the soil. 
<laughs> I mean, it, it was obviously dug up from the ground. Every single hole had something like this in it. It had a piece of junk. Uh, um, you know, uh, on one of them, I remember it was a flattened piece of tin. It was like a, a can that got flattened and dumped. I mean, in World War II, uh, the Nazis, in fact, it was Hermann Goering, actually occupied this castle as a vacation retreat. And so he had his own servants and everybody else who was coming and creating, uh, making food for them while they were staying there. And so it's just a lot easier for them since they don't actually own the castle, just flatten all the uh, cans and just toss them out back in the garden since the garden is right outside the back door of the kitchen. So the owner and I could only hope that the hawker wasn't finding anything of significance because we had no way to know if, um, if you know, this person had found anything at all. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt this great show. Hope you're enjoying it. Uh, this is a really, really important story uh, for many, many reasons, uh, but I gotta, I gotta pay the bills for the website for the uh, podcast too. So let me tell you about the Alter 71 by Rudus. It's a metal detector with the capabilities demanded by advanced users, but provided with preloaded settings with which make it ideal for beginners as well. And that's not a joke. If I can get through it, you can too. Trust me. My mush for brains understands this and loves it. The Alter 71 detector can not only be used as a static detector for very deep, low-frequency work, but just as effectively as a rapid dynamic detector for locating small non-ferrous objects using high frequencies. And did you know that the 71 in Alter 71 means that it has 71 frequencies? Because it does! The flexibility of the detector is enhanced further by the option of dual mode, using the benefits of motion and non-motion simultaneously. <coughs> Head blown. Now what would you think this costs? It doesn't, trust me. This is a mid-range device that has the capabilities of all the top line devices. I've been using this, uh, I'd say for a year now, but I've been out of commission for quite a bit because of my knee. But this year, I'm finally getting back into it. This machine has it. It is a great machine from a small company in Poland who love metal detecting. They love metal detecting. And that's why they created the Rudus Metal Detectors. So make sure you head over to their website and check them out. Rudus.com.pl R-U-T-U-S.com.pl And check it out for yourself and find a distributor somewhere near you. That's it. All right, let's get back to the show. <laughs> now we go back to Henry and Mario. With their bounty in tow, they went home and made a call. Now, is it the call of greed? Uh, is it necessity of the two men? I don't know, but I can tell you they are complete idiots. Okay. They had called down to Cologne, Germany. A good 518 kilometers, I think it is. Um, I looked this up, and it was 321 miles away. And they organized a sale. Now, did I, did I mention this was the day they got home? They literally left that hill, drove home, called this guy in Cologne, and organized a sale. The next morning, not wasting a second, the two men got on a train and traveled 321 miles to Cologne to visit the dealer to sell off the hoard. Now get this. They made 31,000 Deutschmarks. At that time, in 1999, 31,000 Deutschmarks was 15,500 plus or minus. Now, History, priceless relics removed from not only the site, but the region and the state, and then sold off for basically the price of a mid-range car. But wait, 
these guys split the money in half. How? I mean, did they split it in half? I don't know. But these two collegiate professors <laughs> split the earnings between themselves and were happy about what they had done. I ask myself constantly, uh, was it worth uh, $7,750 if they had split it in half? Basically, the cost of my rent without utilities for a year or uh, the down payment of a new car or 100 Xbox One's video games. And I calculated this. 3,387,500 3, pieces of gum if they cost 50 cents. But in my book, if they had taken 775,000 pennies and placed them all in a burlap sack and made them hold that bag directly in front of them, arms fully extended 90 degrees from their body for the next 12 hours every day for a year, it would not make up for the full thing the, the, the complete lack and disregard of everything that they did selling that hoard for 31,000 Deutschmarks. <laughs> so let's look at the items, okay? Let, uh, let, let me tell you exactly what, what was found, uh, you know, in this area. Now, remember that all the items were found within uh, basically a hundred meter circumference of the hilltop, obviously meaning they originated from the same time frame. So, um, the items uh, found with the disc um, are the first things that we're going to look at. So, it was clear uh, from the beginning that uh, the Nebra disc the two golden spiral bracelets and the two bronze swords were all buried together. Um, uh, we'll come to that later on uh, in the show. I got all this written down, uh, so we'll come to that later on. Uh, the items uh, found were carbon dated based on a small piece of wood that was still remaining on... Um, one of the bronze swords. So they, it would have had a, a wooden handle at one point. And basically where it, uh, I guess where it went into the sword or where it was connected at some point, there was still a small piece of wood connected to it. So they were able to do a carbon date analysis of that. Now, they think that all the items minus the disc, now we'll get to that part again later on, uh, were originating, originating at the same time. Uh, and if so, they dated back to around 1,500 to 1,600 before Common Era, uh, before Common Era, also known as uh, BC, uh, 1,500 to 1,600 BC, which is basically an amazing 35 plus hundred years ago. Now, um, the disc. Uh, let, let, let's uh, start looking at this one. Uh, it's a large, like I said, it's a 30 centimeter brass disc. So they were able to figure out through X-ray fluorescence that the brass itself came from Bischofshofen, Austria, which is quite a ways away from where this was located. I mean, Austria is... Even if I drive from where I'm at right now, I'm going to drive about four and a half hours at uh, 80, 90, 100 miles an hour to get to the Austria border. And this is another hour and a half north from me. So driving, that's five and a half hours to six hours driving at modern speed just to get to Austria. So think about that. At 1,500 to 1,600 B.C., that this bronze came that far. Uh, brass, excuse me. Uh, but there's an interesting part. Uh, the gold came from the Carpathian Mountains, which runs basically from uh, the eastern part of the Czech Republic all the way over to Romania. But even weirder, 
is that underneath the gold from the Carpathian Mountains is a layer of underlying gold, which, as well as the tin, uh, they were able to um, carbon date, the uh, not carbon date, but X-ray fluorescent examine the tin that is in the brass. The underlying gold and the the tin in the brass all comes from Cornwall, England. Meaning, whoever made this was getting medals from all over. More on this, again, later on down the show. <laughs> but uh, there's been a huge search uh, for the meaning of the disc since it was rescued. As to what it means, some say the stars represent the constellation Pallades. Some say it was a map of the seasons, the places where the sun rises and sets. Uh, some say it's a calendar for planting crops. Others say it was a religious item. But the speculation came to an end last year. In 1999, the dealer had sold off the hoard that he bought from the two metal detectors. And it changed hands many times through the course of the next two years. Exactly how many, they haven't really explained. But at one point, it fetched one million Deutschmarks. And we're talking about the whole hoard, not just the disc, uh, which is basically uh, just under $500,000 US. But as it was passing hands, Archaeologists had gotten word of the hoard on the black market, which is where it was being passed around. They were interested to see if these items truly were what they were hearing, if they were actual historic relics. In 2001, Dr. Harald Mella heard about the disc in the hoard and actually had been able to see and verify the fact it definitely looked genuine. Now, Dr. Herod Meller is an archaeologist for the state. Dr. Meller studied prehistory and early history, provincial Roman archaeology, and entomology in Munich and Berlin from 1981 to 1987. Boy, I'm glad I got that last word out. What is entomology? Okay. But since 1991, Meller has been a research associate at the Institute for Prehistoric and Protohistoric Studies at the University of Cologne. From 1995 to 2001, he served as an area officer at the State for Archaeology in Saxony. Ah, and then he became the state archaeologist of Saxony-Anhalt and the director of the State Museum of Prehistory of Saxony Anhalt in Halle in the city of Saale. So this is basically the guy for somebody selling stuff on the black market that you don't want him on your tail, especially if the stuff you're selling on the black market comes from Saxony Anhalt where he works because this dude knows what he's talking about a lot. I mean, like a lot, a lot. He's got his master's from southern England and did his doctorate thesis on Roman fibula. So here he is. Word had gotten out on the street that there was this significant find from Saxony that was being marketed around the black market for the last couple of years. And he was able to see it. He knew the significance and he needed more than anything else to get his hands on it before it was lost to all time. Now, the black market on antiquities is one that has intensified in the last couple decades. ISIS has plundered and sold thousands upon thousands of artifacts on the black market to fund their terror regime to the point that thousands of Iraqi historic art was seized by immigration and customs officials which were bought to be sold at a chain of craft stores called Hobby Lobby in the United States and every single item was then returned back to Iraq. Now Dr. Tisha Verveer I hope I pronounced your name right, Tisha. 
she's an archaeologist from the Netherlands and specializes in archaeobotany, ancient environments, osteology, physical anthropology, the ritual use of the body, and funerary archaeology, and a lot more. I mean, this girl's, this woman's um, profile lists everything she knows, and it is a long list. Uh, she also specializes in archaeology in the Middle East and had this to say about the black market in antiquities. <clears throat> Pardon me. ISIS has systematically looted archaeological sites, producing a stream of antiquities sold directly over social media, she said in an interview with the Media Line. For years, the antiquity markets, collectors, and museums bought from illicit diggers. The illicit looting of ancient sites to supply the demand of the art market is a huge problem, and this comes at the expense of losing scientific knowledge in their contexts, she continued. And as pointed out in the article by the Media Line, Dr. Vivier noting, however, that following the landmark UNESCO 1970 conservation, which is on the means of prohibiting and preventing the illicit import, export, and transfer of ownership of cultural property. A museum was unlikely to touch an artifact that, as she says, doesn't have a spotless history. Now this is where we find Dr. Meller in 2002. Word had come out that the hoard was back on the black market. This time the couple who had the hoard on the market had put it up for 700,000 Deutschmarks, basically a little over 350,000 U.S. Actually, a little un under uh, 350,000 U.S. Dr. Meller knew that he had to act and fast in order to save the items or they'd be lost forever. So Dr. Meller organized a huge sting operation to take place in the city of Basel in northwestern Switzerland, where they were being sold. Now, there's not a lot of information about the sting and how it went down. I mean, I can I can imagine. I'm thinking like uh, some kind of uh, Ocean's Eleven heist, uh, except the people heisting are the cops and uh, the people they're stealing from are uh, these two people trying to sell it on the black market. But the end result <laughs> secured the entirety of the hoard, bringing every single piece of it back home to Saxony Anhalt, where it was originally found. The difficult part now began. Who found the items? Were they real? And where were they found? So what they started doing, they started back tracing the people who had owned. So this guy says he bought it from this guy. This guy says he bought it from this guy. This guy says he bought it from this guy. And when I use the word owned... I'm giving the biggest air quotes that you cannot see. I mean, this is, I mean, yeah, me giving these this big of a, I mean, these air quotes are big enough to actually hook a 747 jumbo jet onto a cable kind of big air quotes, which does not transfer very well to a podcast. But they were eventually able to locate Henry Westfall and Mario Renan, the people who had originally found the items. Which, I can only imagine, they must have been really surprised to see the Pulitzer knocking on their front door, standing on their front porch. <laughs> Through interrogation, uh, the men eventually led the police and archaeologists to the area where they said they found the disc. Now, um... Examination of the soil and the dirt on the pieces confirmed it was the same area. It was all the same soil. Now, uh, the archaeologists needed to begin a dig. Uh, they cleared a large swath of trees and began a laborious excavation of the area. And sure enough, they found more bronze items in the ground. The mystery of the location, the mystery of the who, had been sold. But now is where the real mystery began. And it stayed that way from 2002 all the way up till 2018, when the mystery was shouted into the unknown.
religious artifact, archaeological artifact, a coin large enough for an ancient forgotten gumball machine. Uh, <laughs> then in 2018, a discovery was made that put all the pieces of the proverbial disc, pun intended, back into the spotlight. The clues came in part by the metals. Remember them? From the Carpathian Mountains, from Austria and Cornwall, England. Well, this says there must have been some kind of a trade set up in Europe earlier than originally believed. Now, in the late 1800s, an archaeologist found graves dating back 3,600 plus years. Now, these graves were of a people called the uh, Anjetsits. The Anjetsits. Oh, it's, it's spelled A-U-N-J-E-T-I-T-Z. Okay? Don't hate me for not knowing how to pronounce that. Anjetsits. Okay. It's called the Anjetsits culture. It was named after a village near Prague where they were found. However, they didn't understand the significance of what it was they found. Turns out they were the people, the subjects of the owner of the disc. They had created trade routes traveling thousands of kilometers to get trade goods. And there was a single man in charge, a prince, who held the disc and determined when it was time to plant the harvest, and when the seasons would begin and end. Which, this is a big deal. you got to remember this. This is a big deal, because up until this point, people had sacrificed virgins and dogs, and, and um, you know, the occasional geek like me to the sun god for this information. Not really sure how or he or she answered, but... You know, it worked for them. But then there was this guy with this disc. This disc gave a single man power over people. And the rain spread from the middle of the Czech Republic today as far as almost Stuttgart, Germany. Wait, uh, doesn't that sound like a kingdom? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. This disc... And the subsequent finds proves that there was a monarchy in Central Europe thousands of years before the next one came. This disc was used for generations, each adding another piece to the disc. The suns, the moons, uh, eventually those uh, that golden band on the edge. There was originally two added on later on. Um, the crescent moon was added on later on. Another disc was added on later. Uh, each adding another piece to help them better decipher the meanings of the disc. And then 3,600 years ago, tragedy struck. A massive drought and failed crops ended the reign of the disc king. <laughs> it was a volcano in Greece that had exploded and that ash from Greece had basically clouded out the sky and caused a huge ecological problem that lasted several years. This led to a lot of people moving or uh, planting different kinds of crops, which basically disbanded the kingdom forever. It is believed that at this exact time, the disc and the rest of it, you know, the stuff found with it, were buried together in a ceremonial burial. That's why, in the same hole as the disc, were the golden spiral bracelets and the two bronze swords. And then basically, it was forgotten over the course of time. Empires rose. Empires fell. Kingdoms rose. Kingdoms fell. Lands were conquered and lost. Governments sought supremacy. Allies stifled the flames of oppression. New oppressions rose. Kingdoms fell again. New supremacy was sought and snuffed out. All the while, this small, innocuous disc lay dormant in the ground waiting. Waiting for two extremely ignorant, selfish, and stupid men to come and free it to be seen and admired again. And now it can be. The Nibber disc 
sits proudly on display at the Halle State Museum of Prehistory in Halle, Germany, which, under the leadership of Dr. Harald Miller, is now considered one of the greatest museums of prehistory in Europe. Dr. Miller was recognized for his works in rescuing the disc in 2009 with the German Federal Medal of Merit. As for the two stooges of this story, Abbott and Costello of the metal detecting world, the Laurel of Hardy, the Laurel and Hardy of treasure hunters, Henry Westfall was sentenced to 10 months in prison and Mario Renner was sentenced to 4 months. They both appealed. They both had to appeal. At the appeals trial, the judge looked at them and basically told them, hey, you guys know where you can go, you know? And he increased their sentences to 12 months and 6 months. <laughs> but like I said before, at the very beginning of the show, neither men ended up sitting in prison. But in a way, justice was served. This was an eye-opening case for the world, as far as a political stance on metal detecting, especially right here in Germany. Even to this day, um, each state in Germany has their own laws, and no one sees eye-to-eye on the case. The case also put a huge wedge in the trust of metal detectors with archaeologists, especially over here in mainland Europe. If these two dips, these two complete... I can't even I can't even come up with any more adjectives and verbs to describe these two complete idiotic ignoramuses. If these two dips can find, remove, and sell off one of the most important pieces of prehistory in Europe, what else have we lost to others? This comes not only with historical finds like the disc, but even just recently. A man from a German village, uh, Schokopau, boy, the, some of these towns over here, especially in former uh, East Germany, they really have some names. But, so anyway, this guy from the village of Schokopau in Eastern Germany was arrested with over a hundred Nazi-era rifles, dozens of hand grenades, and other munition and components he was planning on cleaning and selling. Now, um... The report says that uh, all of the items were found with a metal detector. The man was pulled over while he was returning home from metal detecting one day when the police noticed the stuff in the back seat. He had uh, a German MG-42 machine gun, and I think, um, I can't remember what the other one was. I think it was an MP-40 that he had found and dug out of the ground. So when he said that he had more, they followed him home, and they found out the man had been storing them, which, in Germany, storing a firearm, operational or not, is illegal. Even the transport of them, operational or in-op, is illegal, even from the site where he found it to his home. And then, again, he was planning on cleaning the dirt and the rust from them, in order to sell them on the black market. Uh, like I said, this included MG-42 machine guns, including ammunition belts, MP-40 machine pistols, hand grenades, rifle-propelled grenades. <laughs> I mean, who thinks of this? He was released in consultation with the local prosecutors, but faces potential charges of violating strict German laws on the possession of weapons. That is what the official report said. And as of July 2018, officials had no immediate comment on when or whether he would be charged. And guess what? This happened in Sachsen-Anhalt, the same state as the Nebra Disc, the same state as the Golden Necklace above. So... One can see the problem that archaeologists and politicians are having with metal detectors here in mainland Europe. Should we be allowed to continue to detect or and hopefully report the finds that we're getting? 
Should we be allowed to help remove over a hundred years of unexploded munitions buried in the earth from two major world wars? Or should the government simply put an end to the hunt? It's a catch-22, plain and simple. Damned if they do, damned if they don't. Allowing us to detect has found amazing artifacts in places no one expected to look, opening new archaeological dig sites. We have found and reported tons, tons of unexploded ammunition and bombs in Germany, mostly near Berlin, where it's, it was the most hectic time at the end of the Second World War. Even I have reported one and had it removed. This itself may have saved the lives of tens, if not hundreds of people over the last 20 to 30 years. Mine might have saved even a child as the grenade or the uh, anti-tank grenade was located right next to a very popular wooded uh, hiking path. Yet, if they ban it, it ensures that less of these historic finds will be damaged by amateur treasure hunters, and fewer will be lost into the black market. So, it's a catch-22. And that's what they're thinking. That's where we're at. Well, thank you, everybody. I hope you really enjoyed this. Uh, I hope you liked the first true crime in metal detecting podcasts, the GDA finds stories, true crime episode. Uh, like I said, this was a very big, very deep uh, story, and you can see all the twists and turns and everything, and how it's still relevant to this day. Um, it's a great story. Uh, I'm just happy that it had an extremely happy ending, and uh, so that's it for me. Uh, this is. Global Detection Adventures, the podcast, the GDA radio podcast. My name is Lance Goolsby. I forgot to mention this at the top of the podcast. <laughs> Hope you guys really enjoyed this. Remember, uh, you guys are the reason that I do this. You're the reason that I love doing this. Make sure you head over to iTunes or wherever you get the podcast and click that like button, leave a comment. Let me know if you love it, if you hate it. If you want me just to... Hang up the microphone and go home. Whatever it is. And uh, until my knee heals, I'll watch you guys out on the fields. Get out there and dig it up, y'all. The internet has changed. So should the way you bank. PNC Virtual Wallet for Digital Banking. It's time for a change. Now through March 31st, earn up to $300 when you open and use a select new virtual wallet product. Simply establish a qualifying direct deposit. To learn more, visit a branch or pnc.com slash checking offer. PNC Bank. Make today the day. Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association member FDIC. The internet has changed. So should the way you bank. PNC Virtual Wallet for Digital Banking. It's time for a change. Now through March 31st, earn up to $300 when you open and use a select new virtual wallet product. Simply establish a qualifying direct deposit. To learn more, visit a branch or pnc.com slash checking offer. PNC Bank. Make today the day. Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association member FDIC.